ho, 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 ho. Hello, J. Crew. It is I, your host, Mark Oppenheimer, welcoming you to the Christmas 2021, or as we say, 5782, episode of Unorthodox. I am sitting comfortably in my easy chair as I listen to the crackle of my Yule log in the fireplace, as I sip my eggnog toddy. Is there such thing as an eggnog toddy? I think, I think there is. It sounds like something Gentiles would drink. And as I welcome you to our annual celebration of Christmas, one of the Gentiles' five great gifts to the world, along with pizza, gin and tonics, the Avett brothers, and the wheel. No, we don't celebrate Christmas, but we celebrate that people celebrate Christmas. And on this Erev Erev Christmas, two nights before the day on which the Christians celebrate the birth of that Jewish carpenter born under mysterious circumstances in a still contested land. We bring you four segments that offer up a Jewish take on this holiday that is as inescapable as it is delightful. For our special episode today, former tableteer and current New York Times writer Mark Tracy joins us to revisit one of his favorite Christmas topics. He talked with us about this some time ago, but he goes deeper now and he brings us up to date on the way that the Jews have consistently invented and reinvented the Christmas carol, and now sometimes the Hanukkah carol. Jewish food writer and cookbook author Melissa Clark tells us about the chocolate babka rugelach recipe she perfected for Christmas this year. A story from our very own Quintern, Quinn Waller, about... I have trouble even saying this, about believing in Santa Claus as a kid and then as an adolescent, as somebody who did not cease believing in Santa Claus until a rather advanced age. It has to be heard to be believed. Plus, never missing an opportunity to exploit an intern or a quintern, we had Quinn go talk to American Ballet Theater principal dancer Skylar Brandt, a Jew, about being Jewish and yet being responsible for dancing a major role in that most Christian and Christmassy of holiday entertainments, the Nutcracker. So stick around, friends. Pull out your chopsticks for your Chinese food and pause the movie. It's unorthodox. Christmas 5782. It's the most wonderful time of the It's not a Christmas episode without our favorite Jewish Christmas expert, Mark Tracy. Mark used to work with us here at Tablet, and back in 2012, he asked David Lehman, author of A Fine Romance, Jewish Songwriters, American Songs, for his top 10 list of the best Christmas songs written by Jews. Because as most of us, I think, probably know by now, Jews wrote some of the classic Christmas songs. In fact, it seems like we wrote most or all of the classic Christmas songs. To the Gentiles, we say, you're welcome. And we asked Mark back to share that list with us, but also to bring us up to date, to give us a little more nachas, a little more Jewish pride, because we keep on writing the great holiday songs. There'll be parties for hosting, marshmallows for toasting, and caroling out in the snow. There'll be scary ghost stories and tales of the glories of Christmases long, long ago. Most of the Christmas songs that we know and love and listen to this time of year were actually written by Jews in the decades before and during mid-century America when the kind of 
culture that the boomers then grew up with and then, of course, imposed on the rest of us was really being formed. Most of the kind of songs that became standards were written by Jews for various social and historical reasons. Jews were the ones who were working out of the Brill building, not to mention working at the record companies and so many other parts of the industry. It just, you know, a lot of that probably had to do, frankly, with New York City and Los Angeles and especially New York City. All, so all these songs were written at this point, decades and decades and decades ago, at a time when Jews' position in America and in American society and in kind of in their trajectory of assimilation was different than it is now. And the way I tend to think of it is that for a long time, Jews tried to assimilate into American culture. So you have Irving Berlin writing these songs that are quintessentially American. At some point, I think the Jewish emphasis ceased to be assimilating into American culture and started to be assimilating Americans into Jewish culture. It's kind of hard to imagine Jews these days and Jewish songwriters these days kind of unironically and earnestly penning these kinds of songs. More likely, you have the great Jewish Christmas song of my youth, which is, of course, not a Christmas song, but is rather Adam Sandler's The Hanukkah Song. school, there were so many Christmas songs, and all us Jewish kids had was the song Dreidel, Dreidel, Dreidel. Put on your yarmulke, here comes Hanukkah, so much. This past year, Chaim, who, of course, are three uh, Jewish sisters from the Valley, did their own version of the Hanukkah song. Guess who eats together at the famous Cantor's Deli? Rashida and Kadana Jones, Eugene and Dan Levy. And it feels like that is much more apt for describing Jews' relationship to the American mainstream now. Merry so let's get to the, the top 10 Christmas songs written by Jews. Number 10, The Christmas Waltz. Music and lyrics by Sammy Kahn and Jewel Stein. Frosted window panes, candles gleaming inside, painted candy canes on the tree, Santa's on. Number 9, Silver Bells. Music by Jay Livingston, lyrics by Ray Evans. Silver bells, silver bells, it's Christmas time in the city. Number eight, Winter Wonderland, music and lyrics by Felix Bernard. Sleigh bells ring, are you listening? In the lane, snow is glistening. A beautiful sight, we're happy tonight, walking in a winter wonderland. God Number seven, Santa Baby. Music and lyrics by Joan Ellen Javits and Philip Springer. Santa Baby, just slip a sable under the tree for me. Been an awful good girl, Santa Baby, so hurry down the chimney tonight number six sleigh ride lyrics by mitchell parish number five i'll be home for christmas music by buck ram lyrics by walter kent 
I'll be home for Christmas. You can play. Number four, I've got my love to keep me warm. Music and lyrics by Irving Berlin. Snow is snowing. The wind is blowing, but I can weather the storm. What do I care how much it may storm? Number three, let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. Lyrics by Sammy Tan, music by Jules Stein. Oh, the weather outside is frightful, but the fire is so delightful. Since we've no place to go, let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. Number two, the Christmas song, or better known perhaps as Chestnuts Roasting on an Open Fire, music and lyrics by Mel Torme and Bob Wells. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire Jack Frost nipping at your nose Number one, White Christmas, music and lyrics by Irving Berlin. The kind of key to understanding these songs is they really are American songs. So on the one hand, these are Jews writing about Christmas, but they're not really writing about Christmas Christmas. They're certainly not writing about Jesus, right? They're turning it into this kind of deracinated American thing. And and the famous canonical Jewish-American quote here, uh, of course, comes from our Jewish Saint Philip Roth, who wrote in an Operation Shylock, the two holidays that celebrate the divinity of Christ, the divinity that's the very heart of the Jewish rejection of Christianity. And what does Irving Berlin do? He de-Christs them both. Easter he turns into a fashion show, and Christmas into a holiday about snow. May your day be merry and bright, and may all your Christmases be Now, you've probably made one of Melissa Clark's recipes before, either from the New York Times cooking section or one of her many cookbooks, or it was passed on like Sama's Dot on a little note card from a friend and you didn't even know it was Melissa Clark's. Stephanie and Liel chatted with Melissa about one of her latest recipes, which injects some delicious Jewishness into the New York Times Christmas cookie collection. Melissa Clark, welcome back to Unorthodox. So great to be here. This is exciting because the last time you were on the show, it was to talk about Passover and Passover recipes and Passover food traditions. And now we have you back to talk about another important holiday, Christmas. (laughs) Exactly. Which isn't 
the thing you'd think we'd be talking about, but yet here we are. You contributed to the New York Times' Cookie Spectacular, which is sort of like a Christmas-themed recipe package, and you presented us with a recipe for chocolate babka rugula. Rugula. <laughs> exactly. I just have to get my identity, my Jewish identity out there in any way I can. You know, they asked me what I wanted to make, and I love rugula for Christmas. It's just, I think it's perfect. It remi- First of all, it reminds me that it's not all, it's not just Christmas, because sometimes you can forget, you know, in our culture, it's just we're so immersed in Christmas being everywhere. It can be hard to hold on to the things that are my own Jewish identity. I get subsumed in Christmas culture sometimes. So that little bite of Ruggalach is there to remind me. And I and plus it's delicious. So it's just a win-win. I love that you said this year for Christmas, I'm going to get you a cookie with two names you'll have difficulty pronouncing. Babka and Ruggalach. <laughs> How do you combine these two magic? This this is like a super jam band, like the Avengers of Jewish baked goods. Tell us about the origins of this idea. I am obsessed with both of these things, with Ruggalach and Babka. Never occurred to me to put them together. It never even occurred to me to really make chocolate Ruggalach. You know, for me, I love the jammy flavors. I love, I mean, I love chocolate Ruggalach, but I really love like the raspberry and the apricot. So I didn't think I would want to make it, but, um, I had made some babka and I had the leftover crumbs, you know, those delicious chocolate Mm. crumbs that you put on a chocolate babka. And one of the things I like to do with my rugelach is to take a mixture that's sort of similar in the way it feels in your hand. It's chopped nuts and raisins and cinnamon sugar. And the chocolate babka stuff was just in the fridge, like, you know, and it was that light bulb moment of, oh, wait a second, let's go ahead and do this. Let's just put this into the pastry and see what happens. And, you know, good things happened. It was so delicious to me. It is better than most chocolate rugelach recipes because not only am I using this chocolate crumb mixture, I also have a chocolate ganache in there. And the ganache gets, it stays soft and kind of icing-like, but the part that leaks out on the baking sheet gets like caramelly and crunchy. It's just so good. I wish I could give you some right now, you two. I, I wish we were in the studio and not, you know, in our own homes. Look, we can come over and eat them at your house. If that's what you're <laughs> we're, saying, we're have we'll to do arrange it. that. We really for are. journalism. Yes. <laughs> Let me ask you this. So cookies, probably more than any other type of food, have this like intense ability to transport us back in time to like a very specific kind of emotional setting. I mean, Proust sort of made a career on this entire notion. <laughs> Babka takes you places. Rugalach takes you places. First of all, tell us where these two specific cookies take you emotionally. And where does this new creation going to take the people who eat it? What is the emotional impact that you've designed here? So taste like smell is all about your past, right? And I can't, I don't know what everyone else is going to connect to in these cookies, but I can tell you for me, what's important is, you know, I remember, I mean, I grew up in Brooklyn. My grandmother lived right near us in Flatbush and she would come over, you know, from the the kosher bakery and she always had her thing. She'd bring me jelly donuts and she'd bring me babka. And it wasn't chocolate babka. It was just, it was cinnamon babka. And it was always dry. It actually wasn't very good babka, to be perfectly like, I wanted those jelly donuts. The babka was like, eh. But you know what was really good about the babka? On the bottom, like I can feel them now. It's like on the bottom of that pastry box, there were these little, just the cinnamon crumbs. Oh, those babka crumbs. Like that's the cinnamon sugar, the texture, the sandiness, the sweetness. And so I go right back there. I'm sitting in my grandma's lap. I've got the crumbs in one hand. I've got the jelly donut in the other hand. I've got my grandma's arms around me. Like what's better? You don't get better than that. Right. And then the rugelach, you know, again, rugelach, it was something I came to later that it really wasn't part of like we had Mandelbrot, we had babka, we had jelly donuts. We didn't have a lot of rugelach 
No one in my family made it. I found it later in life. I actually probably, I think it's probably Russ and daughter's fault. I think, you know, I was living on the Lower East Side and I was, I would go and I would get a little bag of their rugelach and that sort of started me off. And, um, you know, again, like I love the raspberry raisin one. So I'm like back there in my apartment on the Lower East Side in graduate school. You know, I've got my locks. I've got my rugelach. I've got my, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> my fifth floor walk up <laughs> and I'm, you know, 23. I love that, that like you and, and many Jewish forebears have, you know, on the Lower East Side uh, finding their... <laughs> exactly. You know, it's funny because this conversation is reminding me that you contributed an entry for Tablet's 100 Most Jewish Foods. You contributed the black and white entry and you talk about your grandmother, Ella, and the kosher bakery in Flatbush. And you you reference the very robust Jewish cookie scene in New York City. And so I love that you are keeping this tradition alive. Yeah, that's true. Actually, they're always, you know, black and white cookies, she would bring those, but not as often. Like it was really the babka and the jelly donuts that came on like a weekly basis. Black and white cookies were the special occasion cookies. And boy, were those good too. So I have to ask, you know, you clearly love cooking. You love baking. Do you have any Christmas traditions in your home? I mean, are, there, are you preparing a meal? Are you doing anything for Christmas this year? Yeah. So I'm, I mean, never celebrated Christmas growing up. We were the Chinese food, go to the movies type of household. You know, I remember asking my mother if we could have a Christmas tree. It was just like horror on her face. I'm like, well, no, what? we're not going to do that. But I married a non-Jew. The joy of his childhood was Christmas. And he wanted to create a tradition in our family, you know. So we celebrate Christmas. We go all out. But there's always like a little competition. I have to say, like a little Hanukkah Christmas competition. I'm like, latkes are the best holiday food. And, you know, he's like, no, you know, whatever it is we have for Christmas. So, and I'm like, at Hanukkah, we get eight days of presents. And, you know, he's like, yes, but at Christmas, we get to open them in the morning, you know. So it's like <laughs> this little back and forth. But we, we celebrate both very robustly. We also celebrate solstice. We have solstice traditions um, in our house. If there is, if we can find an excuse to celebrate, we are going there. The famous solstice pastry. So listen, I grew up in Israel. The only Christmas table tradition that I know comes from, you know, classic Hollywood movies. I'm imagining the most goyish feast with like a goose and, you know, cranberries, like really something that has no Yiddishkeit in it. How do you take a Christmas meal? And or a Christmas dinner or a luncheon or, or whatever it is that the tradition is and infuse it with some heavy elements of, of Jewish cooking other, of course, than a chocolate babka rugala extravaganza. Well, you know, it's actually interesting that you talk about we did do goose one year. Um, we do duck a lot. But to me, goose and duck, like to me, that's the shtetl. Like... <laughs> <laughs> I don't necessarily, like, I'm not going, I mean, I, yes, I think about Dickens, I think about like flaming punch, and we do do a flaming punch, by the way, a friend of ours comes over and does a flaming Christmas punch. So we have that. But to me, a goose, like, or a duck cooked in that fat, you know, I mean, because think about Jews relationships to geese and ducks. It's almost like a goyish relationship to bacon. It's fatty, it's rich, it's crispy, it's so delicious when it's done right. So I'm all about that. And I feel like it is a good way to, to kind of merge those cultures. Everyone loves a, a well-cooked fatty bird. Is like Everyone loves that. So that is, part, that is part of our Christmas. Right. You could almost imagine great-grandma, you know, Mania chasing a goose outside the, the little alleyways of the shtetl. I, I, I'm sorry, but like fiddler on the roof. Like I see it. I see <laughs> that. <laughs> that's, what, that's what I see in my head. This is a Christmas miracle. Melissa Clark, thank you so much. And Merry Christmas. Uh, Merry Christmas. Thanks for having me.
Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J. Crew! it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Char Bar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag uomember and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. You've heard us talk about our super intern, our quintern, before on this show. She's converting to Judaism, but she has a Christmas past. And what a Christmas past it is. It involves Santa Claus. It involves the suspension of disbelief. It involves willful belief. And it involves a young girl turning into a young woman who simply couldn't stop believing. Here's our very own Quinn Waller with her Santa Claus story. I have a confession to make. I believed in Santa for a really long time. Like, too long. Like, until I was 13. I don't think it was really my fault. No one told me. I'm an only child, so I didn't have any older siblings to disillusion me, and I guess Santa wasn't a hot topic of conversation between me and my middle school friends. I was also way more entrenched in Christmas culture than a lot of other kids. I was a dancer growing up, and I was in the Nutcracker. So every year, from September to December, I was deep in the Christmas world. 
But here's the other thing. My mom was really invested in my belief in Santa. Like a lot of parents, she'd write, to Quinn from Santa on the presents. But she would write that with her left hand so I wouldn't recognize her handwriting. One year, she even somehow managed to fabricate reindeer tracks outside in the snow. When I was in the fourth grade, I started to doubt if Santa was real or not. I almost stopped believing. But then my mom did this one crazy thing. She actually got someone to play Santa and to call me on the phone and talk me back into believing. I asked my podcast bosses, Stephanie and Josh, to help me recreate the call. Have a listen. Hello? Is this Quinn Marie Waller? I have a collect call for you from the North Pole. Do you accept? Yes. Okay, I'm patching you through right now. Ho, ho, ho. Hello, Quinn. This is Santa. Hi, Santa. Well, it looks like you've been a very good girl this year. Well, I've tried to be. I saw that you played Amazing Grace at your violin recital. That's one of my favorite songs, and I know that you must have practiced very hard to play that well. Yes, I did. Well, it seems to me that a little girl that practices that hard deserves a really good Christmas present. I want a puppy. Ho, ho, ho. Well, that's between you and your parents. Is there anything you want that isn't alive? Um, a dollhouse? A dollhouse seems like a very good present. I'll see what I can do. Thank you, Santa. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Ho, 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 So, I mean, obviously that was Santa. There was no way that a Santa imposter could have known that I played Amazing Grace. After that, there was no saving me. My belief was ironclad. I think I knew that other kids didn't believe in Santa, but now I really had proof that they were wrong. That one phone call made sure that I believed in Santa for another four years. But why? Why did my mom want to make sure I kept believing in Santa? I mean, she let me keep believing until I was in seventh grade. I had a boyfriend. I was in pre-algebra. I was going to school dances in high heels and still believed in Santa. So to find out why I believed so long, I called up my actual middle school friends and my parents. Hello? 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 Even though believing in Santa was a big part of my childhood, apparently no one from that time period knew that I believed for that long. Did you really? You believing in Santa into your teens, it just, it, it goes along with who you are. Yeah, you were definitely into Santa. Wasn't your Halloween costume one year? Wasn't it Santa Claus? Yeah. Oh, man, I just... <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Dad. You were very eccentric as a child. I feel like you were just, like, really unique. That's a nice way of putting it. I mean, you were really gullible. She's totally right. It wasn't just Santa. Like Jane and Catherine are about to tell you, I believed in things. We would tell you, so-and-so has a crush on you. And you actively believed it. Yeah. As far as to like develop a crush on them in return. No, but do you remember when we told you that Calvin thought you guys were dating? <laughs> and then you were like, well, okay, I guess we're dating now. <laughs> like you just, like no part of you was like, what? No, you were like, yeah, all right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, checks out. 
So my friends and my dad confirm I'm a sucker. But I needed to go to the source. Hello. Hi, Mom. It's Quinn. I asked her about that phone call that she set up with Santa. It was somebody at work that happened to mention that he would call kids as Santa Claus and he had some information about them provided by the parents and then he would call them and say he was Santa Claus and they could have a conversation. Did you predict that that phone call would make me believe in Santa for four more years? Well, I mean, not particularly, no. One of the things my mom really cared about was something she calls the spirit of Christmas. The spirit of Christmas is giving, right, without the expectation of receiving. I really wanted to show you what that was like. I think one of the best parts of the holiday season is just doing some of the stuff in the lead up to the actual day. Like, So it's not just one day of opening presents. It's a lot of days of spending time with the family, baking cookies or going to the Nutcracker. I just wanted it to be not just one day and then let down after that, but just a whole nice sort of experience. Did my mom realize I actually still believed in Santa? Well, I figured you were just playing along because at a certain point, every kid kind of gets that it's not Santa Claus that we're celebrating. It's the spirit of Christmas and what Santa represents. All right, Mom. Well, even though you led me to believe in Santa for far longer than was normal. Well, I mean, (laughs) I really, honey, I wasn't doing that stuff in seventh grade. Wait, what? For years, I've blamed my mom. I thought it was her dedication to the Christmas spirit and to me having a magical Christmas that was the reason I kept believing in Santa. Now she was turning the tables, saying maybe this was on me. I'm sorry. (laughs) Fourth grade, sure. Fifth grade, okay. By the time you got to middle school, I mean, don't you think one of the whoever was a mean kid in your class would have been like... (laughs) That's so stupid that you're believing that. Don't you know there's no such thing? Don't you think somebody would have have burst your bubble? But that's just it. No one ever did burst my bubble. And I can't even blame my mom anymore. This is all on me. As far as the actual bubble popping moment, it was pretty gentle. Do you remember the day that I asked you if Santa was real? Well, no. (laughs) But you probably asked me about two dozen times. So... Which specific day? Not really. What did you say when I asked you two dozen times? Do you remember when we were listening to the Laura Ingalls Wilder series? Can you tell the story without using Little House on the Prairie? That's embarrassing. No. I said, remember what Ma said to Laura Ingalls. (laughs) She said it in a really nice way that made sense and felt really good and really resonated with me. Here's the passage my mom is talking about from the third book in the series, On the Banks of Plum Creek. This time, I had my roommate read it for me. Ma! She cried. There is a Santa Claus, isn't there? Of course there's a Santa Claus. The older you are, the more you know about Santa Claus. You are so big now. You know he can't just be one man, don't you? You know he is everywhere on Christmas Eve. He is in the big woods and far away in New York State. And here... He comes down all the chimneys at the same time. 
Then Ma told them something else about Santa Claus. He was everywhere, and besides that, he was all the time. Whenever anyone was unselfish, that was Santa Claus. Honestly, I'm not upset that I believed that long. Sure, it's a little embarrassing, but I had 13 years of really magical Christmases. The world seems brighter when you believe in stuff like that, when you believe that Santa is real, when you believe that the G train is going to be on time today, when you believe that the guy is gonna call, when you believe that this season, the Mets are gonna win the World Series. I'd rather be gullible than cynical. Even if I'm not right all the time, the world is a whole lot more magical. As I become an actual adult and form new beliefs, whether that means my impending conversion to Judaism or that I still sometimes trust my horoscope, I hope I can keep some of that Santa magic with me, wherever life takes me. Now, I'll embarrass myself for this podcast any day of the week, but I am also a professional, and I wanted to do some actual reporting. When I was working on this story, thinking about my Nutcracker past, I found out that a principal dancer at American Ballet Theater, Skylar Brandt, is a Jew. I talked to her to find out what it's like to dance in the most Christmassy ballet when you don't celebrate Christmas. My name is Skylar Brandt, and I'm a principal dancer with American Ballet Theater. A principal dancer means that every time I enter the stage, I go on as the leading character of the given ballet that we are performing. It's essentially the highest title that you can attain as a ballet dancer. It's the top of the career path and a huge honor. <laughs> I was promoted to principal dancer in September of last year, and it was really an incredible moment because I had wanted to be a principal dancer at American Ballet Theater since I was eight years old. And in that moment, I was just so filled with emotion because I was thinking about my eight-year-old self and all of these big dreams and aspirations I had. I think that when I speak to most people, especially people that are not super educated in, in ballet, typically they say, oh, well, I've seen the Nutcracker. You know, it's that staple ballet that most everyone is familiar with, I think because it has a special place in the holiday season and it becomes kind of a family tradition for people to go take their kids and watch the Nutcracker. You know, it becomes one of those ballets that's just performed every single year and it's a familiar household name for ballet. So because The Nutcracker is a primarily Christmas story, I remember that as a child, it did bother me a little bit to feel like I was portraying this story that wasn't inherently my own. And I was trying to find levels to relate to it that made me feel more, perhaps more comfortable within the production. 
But then I sort of realized that part of my job as a ballerina is to also be an actress. And so once I sort of changed my perspective on what it means to be a part of a production, it helped me to get past my slight discomfort being a Jewish person in a very Christian ballet. And so it presented a, cha a certain challenge for me that made it so that um, I could focus more on how I was going to transform myself into a different person with different ideas and different values and different thoughts. So I will be making a debut this year in the Nutcracker. I will be dancing what would typically be known as the Sugar Plum Fairy. In our production, it's actually Clara grown up in her dreams. And so I'll be debuting that role as the grown up Clara. I think that will quickly become my favorite role just because it's the leading role of the ballet and it's also an extremely challenging and demanding but fulfilling part of the Nutcracker. I think that it's also one of these ballets that has a lot of roles for young children. So for myself, for example, I think I was probably five or six years old when I first played a baby mouse on stage in The Nutcracker. And then I was also an angel in the second act. And then as I grew up, I played a party kid and maybe, you know, kids played the toy soldiers or I had the opportunity to play Clara as a young girl. So. It's one of these ballets that you really grow up in. There are a lot of Jewish dancers that I know. Those dancers haven't typically always advertised that they are Jewish. But that being said, you know, it would, it would be interesting to see if there's some sort of story that can be told on behalf of the Jewish people. Friends, as I wish you a Merry Christmas, I want to share a bit of wisdom from my rabbi here in New Haven, Connecticut. This year, Friday night, Kabbalah Shabbat is, of course, Erev Christmas, Christmas Eve. And our rabbi here at Bethel Kesser Israel, Rabbi Eric Woodward, has a little tradition that he's invited us to for this Friday night. He said, come to Minyan and you can join me in welcoming in Shabbat and also singing one of the greatest Christmas songs ever written. From 1997, the South Park anthem, A Jew on Christmas. I'm a Jew, a lonely Jew, on Christmas. Hanukkah is nice, but why is it that Santa passes over my house every year? If you're listening on Thursday and you have a little time tomorrow night, Friday night, I wish that for all of you. Do something Jewish, whether it's making a nice Shabbat dinner, whether it's baking your first challah in many a moon, whether it's going to shul and hearing the sweet melodies of the Kabbalah Shabbat service. And then at the end of it, pull up your YouTube or hum a few bars from memory of South Park's A Jew on Christmas. One of the great testaments to the way that we as a people can make terrific art even out of the holidays we're left out of. A good yontif to you. I'm a Jew, a lonely Jew. I'd be merry, but I'm Hebrew 
on Christmas. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Studios and hosted by me, Mark Oppenheimer, and Stephanie Butnick and Leah Leibovitz. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. He edits the show along with producers Robert Scaramuccia and Quinn Waller. Our managing producer is Sarah Fredman-Ader. Additional voice acting this episode comes from Kelsey McDonald. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. And if you need last-minute Christmas presents and you don't want to run out to Target on Christmas morning and you have to get something for your Christian friends, get your unorthodox swag at bit.ly slash unorthoshirt. And then you can just write them a little note that says your swag is arriving in the mail wicked soon. Our episode art is by Esther Wardiger, and our theme music is by Golem. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Shmuel Hertzfeld with a big mazel tov to him on his venture starting a new inclusive Orthodox yeshiva down in greater Washington, D.C. And we come to you from the scattered, snowbound, eggnog-infused home offices of Tablet Studios. Wishing you a good wassail. Shalom, friends. Shalom, friends.